You're listening to Innovative Minds with Melanie Francis, where we talk to some of the top thought leaders, business leaders, and marketers around the globe. Tune in every Thursday and spark your mind. And now, let's get into it. Welcome back to Innovative Minds. Today, I have with me Stephen Lewis, who is the director of Taylorist. I've known and followed Stephen for some time now, and I love the way that he's got away with words and the way he expresses, and that's how I've actually come across Stephen's brand and his company. And I've seen some of the really cool work they do with landing pages and, you know, the crafty way. And I'll tell you this is probably not one of those cheap type of landing pages. He's a really high quality, high end expert when it comes to any type of copy, when it comes to landing pages, ads. And I thought, you know what, when he came up on my feed the other day, I was like, I am really in this space where we want to get better with landing pages, with ads. And there is no one better than Stephen that I know in my network to really explore what it takes to have a winning landing page. And he is one of the best there is in that I know of within the arena of Sydney and within Australia. So I wanted to bring him on and pick his brain and find out everything that he knows and what's trending within the landing pages and ads and copy and all that sort of stuff. And I thought it was just going to be landing pages and ads I told him about, but then I was looking at you and I was like, you know what, there's emails that you're doing and LinkedIn profiles, and I'm going to pick your brain also in those and what you're seeing working. So thank you for coming on. Great to be here. Great. Look, the first thing, obviously the way I know you for is your winning landing pages that, you know, you've been doing that and that's your bread and butter. And the thing I've been seeing the most fail, Stephen, is when people come to us saying, you know, can we do, can you do ads for us? And we'll come up with this great creative concept, put out some great brand awareness and messaging and videos for our clients. But then what will happen is we'll land them onto the landing page and the landing page will be sucky and it won't convert. And they were saying to us they were going to fix it and they didn't and, you know, it ends up being that the ad doesn't end up performing, but the ad performs really well, like a really great click through and really great clicks. And then I've got a failing landing page. I see that so often and it's it's like pretty much now my view is like if you're not going to spend on landing pages, just don't bother doing ads. Well, that makes perfect sense. You know, once you've... Once you've taken out the other variables, like as you say, if the ad is working, if it's getting clicks from the right people to the right message, if those people aren't converting, it's your landing page. Like there isn't another answer. If it's the right people who want what you're selling, why aren't they buying it? It's the landing page. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. We did a landing page for a surgeon in America and I I won't you all the details but this guy was one of only two people in the world who does what he does he does it for people who really need it you know you're not talking about people who need nose jobs or lip filler or whatever it might Mm. be this is serious medical debilitating condition 
he was getting traffic to his website. So you know the traffic's qualified because they've typed the name of their condition into Google. You don't do that if you don't want a cure. So how do you find the website of the only one of the only two guys in the world who does what he does and not pick up the phone and call him? It's because the landing page is shit. Mm. So when we rewrote his landing page, 433% jump in conversions because the landing page said the right things. It's as simple as that. So when you go into writing a landing page, what is the kind of type of questions that people are coming and they're hoping to get out of it as a, as a general. And then maybe we can talk about how much it has to be then modified to the ad that you serve. But as a general rule of thumb, what is, is it like people going above the fold? You know, the first thing they see, what should you be articulating right there? Cause I've got so many mixed messages. What should be there? Above the fold, you need to confirm for the person that they are in the right place for what they want and paint them a little picture of what they're getting. So if, 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 you, if you think about the people with a medical condition, above the fold, you want to hear that there is a cure and you are in the right place to hear about the cure. What you want to deal with ideally as soon as possible is whatever these people's first big objection is. So again, okay. sticking with the surgical example, you might imagine that a surgical solution to your problem will be too expensive for you. If your research has shown you that people are worried about the expense, then above the fold, you need to say affordable cure is available. Oh, right. Right. As it happens in the case of our research, people didn't believe the cure existed. So the first thing they need to see above the fold is, hey, you've got this medical condition. There's confirmation you're in the right place. And it is treatable. And then as early as possible, introducing some kind of proof. So in our case, I think that page says something like 40,000 patients treated or whatever it might be. Okay. To so get somebody reading on. Are you saying that's right there as soon as I land that the first section's got that you're giving social proof? the minute that you land because most people would then press back. It doesn't have to be social proof. It has to be proof of your biggest objection, like your biggest doubt. So if you're overweight and you've tried everything, hmm. maybe you're searching for a solution, but you know, you get to this page and you're like, oh, look, I don't know. Yeah. The, the more compelling the offer that you put up at the top, the suggestion of what is going to come, the more people will read. So you, that is why 80% of copywriting is the research. You have to understand what is the situation that somebody is in right now? What do they need to hear? And in what sequence? Like that's the absolute key. So we, we have a course on writing a landing page. And what, what I use in that course is the metaphor of unlocking a safe, like one of those combination safes. You might know the combination is 15, 64, 22, but if you enter that as 22, 64, 15, the safe won't open. And a landing page is the same. If you start talking about how affordable the surgery is before somebody believes the surgery will work, it doesn't matter. If I'm not concerned whether I can afford the surgery, why would you start by talking about that? So it's really important. So in, in your case, 
you've done these great Facebook ads to these people. What is the first thing they need to believe when they hit the landing page? And that is what you start with. But that's where research happens or, or, or pays off because so many people think there's something special, revolutionary, God help me, innovative about their product. And they're excited because it was really hard. They had to fly to Chiang Mai to find the only guy in the world who could make it. They worked with the factory for three years to get the prototype just right. And they want to tell you all about that. Do you care how hard Amazon works to make Amazon Prime delivered to you within 24 hours? Of course you don't. So Amazon doesn't talk to you about the logistics. They just tell you it's coming in 24 hours. And that's very sad for their logistics people who don't get celebrated because they've worked really hard to make that possible. But people get tied up in what was difficult for them as the company to achieve and completely lose sight of what the customer is trying to achieve. And so that's how you need to be thinking about that landing page. The customer is coming to you with some baggage, with some hopes, with some dreams. What are they? And in what order do you have to deal with them? Yeah, got it. So when I'm thinking about, say even me, when I'm doing a landing page and I'm putting out, we help you with your LinkedIn personal branding. Right. But they they're like, okay, what does that really mean for That's me? Right. Like, okay, personal what, branding. what is there? They want to get either leads. They want to either get fame or they want to put to be, they want to be known. Like this is what the words that they're, so you've got to really listen to what your customers are saying when they're on the call with you and decipher, like, what are they in their brain? They're suggesting, but something cool that you just said was, but the order in which you serve sequence of content is I think that's super important. So when we used to do the ads before, when we first started doing ads, what we used to do on social was just, you know, here are all the 50 different ads. And, you know, once they watch this, they'll sporadically get 50 others. But now what I'm realizing is if you have to control the way they watch the 50 ads. Like if they watch this one, then they'll watch this one. And then after they've watched this one, then they'll watch this one. So you can control the journey because you're almost trying to mimic a journey, aren't you, of a closed conversion? Like if you knew exactly what content they'd been served other than yours to finish and complete that conversion, like who did they watch? Like, you know, I'm like now so obsessed in the clients we've closed to go, who did they watch before me? Not just, they didn't just watch my content. Like they watched Justin Welsh. Maybe they watch Chris Walker. Like we need to bring those same journeys to the other buying personas because if they watch the same sort of content in the same sequence which is now what you've highlighted super cool and embedded that thought further in my head is then you can actually get to conversion so a lot of the times you might actually have what you know but you're not maybe sequencing it right you have to there you know there's a claude hopkins who's a famous copywriter wrote a book called scientific advertising said you have to be in the conversation in the reader's head there is a conversation mm -hmm. happening in their head and you have to be in it you if you start talking about something that isn't part of that conversation, they're not ready to hear it. So the advantage that copywriting is salesmanship in print. So if you're a salesperson and you're sitting in front of the client, you can meet them where they are because they're going to start asking you questions. They're going to go, oh, like, you know, when, when we bought a Thermomix, for instance, it was fascinating because clearly 
Thermomix salespeople are trained in direct response, essentially. So every Thermomix presentation starts with the presenter saying, are you concerned about the price of food? Are you concerned about experience? Are you con convenience rather? Are you concerned about getting recipe ideas? What's your... And so mm. you, you would say, oh, well, the cost of living is going through the roof. I'm actually concerned. And, and so they'll start with how the Thermomix is going to save you money. You can't do that on a landing page. You have to think, okay, well, I have to know this audience really well. And the biggest chunk of them is going to be here. They're going to know this, feel this, think this. What do I need to move them to? in order to get them interested enough, you know, to buy and trusting me, how do I get them to trust me? Because mm. trust, I mean, two things are always an issue. I mean, one that there's trust, of course, and particularly if you're doing things online where you want a credit card number, you, you want someone to trust you. Two is human beings like the status quo. So even if you're overweight and unfit and researching gyms, a gigantic part of you is looking for a reason not to join the gym because it's more inconvenient. It will force you to change your routine and your habits. You need to buy some new clothes and oh, get up earlier. And, oh, it's too exhausting to think about it. I don't want to do it. So everybody is always looking for an excuse to continue doing what they're already doing, whether that is being unfit or not owning the thing that you sell it's always easier to just keep doing what we're doing. So the job of your copywriting has to make what you're offering sound so appealing that being without it is actually worse than going to all the trouble of having to get it and wonder if it will arrive and, oh, you know, we'll have Got to go it. to the post office and pick it up. Once then you've arrived into your landing page, so you've put, you know, what you do and then you've put some numbers to it and you've tried to say you've somehow dealt with the main problem that as you understand it now you're trying to build more credibility and trust so now you've they're not going to go press the back button you've now they're going to scroll down and check it out what's the next steps here that you know that you'd want to see on a landing page so to say it's a service-based business we've landed in and they're an accountant business this and you know you've said this is what we do what's the next couple of dial-in points in terms of the structure that needs the to easiest be structure that i've found to teach people is the one that taylor's teaches in the landing page course which is objections from big to small and they do go from big to small so you you need to think what is it people want and why will they not do what I want them to do? So if I'm a law firm, for instance, why will they not do it? Well, maybe they're already with another law firm. So that would be really awkward. So if I know that I'm advertising to clients who want the legal service that I sell, but are probably with another lawyer, then my landing page would be a headline that says what I do and why it's going to be beneficial to you. And you're going to think, oh, yeah, I do want that. And I don't have that right now. That's what you want. I do want it. And I don't have it right now. What's the first thing they're going to think? They're going to think, oh, well, I'm already with a firm. And it's probably a real pain in the neck to get the stuff out of the other firm. Then I'd be looking for the next row of the landing page to be, 
you won't believe how easy it is because we just turn up at the other firm with a big black bin bag and we just pull everything off their shelves and then we sort it out for you. And you go, ooh, okay, that sounds good, but oh, the other firm's probably going to be really pissed off with me. No, we make sure the other firm isn't really pissed off with you because we do this. You're doing it all the time. So the thing about copywriting that is difficult, and I think in a, in a way, well, there are many things about it that are difficult, but it's difficult for people to understand because they think it's just, I type some nice sounding stuff on a page and then I really wonder why don't people buy? And, yes. and it's because everything on a properly written landing page is probably doing more than one thing. So I'm talking to you at the big level about, oh, I've got an objection, you know, the law firm will be cross with me and I've dealt with that. But you make an assertion, so then you've got to be thinking, well, okay, how do I prove that within that section? So I can say to you, no, the other firm won't be cross with you. And you say, bullshit, I've met them. They're angry people and they're lawyers and they'll litigate with me and I don't like it. So you've asserted it, but then where's the proof? So you right. always need to be thinking, okay, well, every time I've asserted something, where is my proof? So if I say the other firm isn't going to be cross with you, I say there's a rating site where lawyers rate each other and we have a 98% you know, satisfaction rating from other lawyers that we've stolen work from or whatever it might be or a testimonial. Because that's the thing, if I can digress for a moment, that people really screw up and that's testimonials because social proof is the most powerful form of proof. It's not the only form of proof. You certainly shouldn't rely on it exclusively. But most people have a testimonial that says, Melanie's lovely. I really enjoyed working with her. Now, that's mm. fantastic. If you think an objection people might have is that Melanie isn't lovely and you won't enjoy working with her. Yeah. But if that's yeah. not a prime objection, you've wasted that testimonial. So in my example, you'd want the testimonial to say, I thought my original lawyers would be really, really cross, but they weren't. They shook my hand and hugged me on the way out of the door. It's that kind of be thinking always, I've made an assertion, what is the proof that that's for real? How do you even like do that kind of research that you're suggesting, you know, the, the in-depth, like you're almost sitting there having a conversation with a person that you've never ever met. Like how do you even then know what they're actually thinking and then are they going to share with you authentically like you're sitting in front of them? So Because you're sitting there actually in front of me having a conversation with two people in your mind to go, this is what I need to write. So you've got to be a pretty much a creative thinker to know what the hell they're thinking. So how do you do I, that? I, I don't, I don't actually agree because you're looking at, if you know what you're looking for, you know, you're looking in forums, you're looking in reviews. We interview the clients of our clients. Like, I mean, that, for our clients at Taylor's, it's one of the most surprising things that they find. So our research process involves a number of steps, but one of them is interviewing their clients. And so often you come back to them and say, your clients told us this, that actually they came to you because of that. Actually, they stay with you because of this. Actually, when they refer you, they say that. And they're like, oh, I had no idea. Yeah. And I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you one of my favorite examples, which is a client of ours who sells food wholesale mm. to cafes. And one of the places that he sells to is the David Jones food hall. So I phoned the buyer at the David Jones food hall and said, tell me, tell me about my, my client. Like, 
do you really like his food? Is that why you, and she said, oh, I've never tasted his food. So she's the food buyer, but David Jones doesn't taste the food, doesn't know. I said, oh, okay, why, you know, tell me why you like them. She said, well, you wouldn't believe how difficult my other suppliers are. They're small businesses. They don't answer the phone. They don't invoice properly. They're hard to get hold of, just difficult to deal with. Whereas your client, super professional, his team always answers the phone. They send their paperwork all squared away so I don't get accounts phoning me up and giving me a hard time. So out of that, my client found out that when he was writing a landing page for cafes and other businesses that would buy his products, he, of course, he should talk about the quality of the food, but he also had a massive competitive advantage in that he could talk about how easy he was to deal with, including quoting David Jones as saying he's really easy to deal with. So that's a massive advantage for him that comes from phoning people up and asking just stupid questions and listening to what they say. And a lot of the questions do sound stupid. Like you ask a food buyer, do you like the food? I just thought she was going to say, of course, I bloody like the food. What do you think? Why would I order it if I didn't like it? But she's never even tasted it. It's not what I would have expected. And how, I guess, often should you be, you know, asking and talking to your client as to how and why they stay? I feel like that's great that you're coming and doing it, but you know, it's a, intimidating question to sit there and do a check like hey why do you because you you're like oh are they going to say something else I don't uncover you know what I mean like you it's not a natural thing to be like hey Stephen how are you going you know so why do you, I just want to ask you why do you stay with us and because most of the times you're trying to have a conversation about them and their issue you're not trying to so I guess it's really hard for business owners or anyone to go and ask for that feedback as to why you stay and so forth. So do you find that we should be asking more often and getting that pulse check or? I think so, because some of my clients, so the first stage of Taylor's process is the client, our client gets a questionnaire and then we have a meeting. And, and the purpose of that meeting it's essentially to find out how the client sees the world. You know, what do you think your business is? What do you think you sell? What do you think people are buying from you? Why do you think people choose you? All of those questions. And then the next stage is going out and validating that. And sometimes you're coming back and saying, but that, that bears no relation to, to why people are actually buying from you, what they want, who they've spoken to before, or, you know, it, all of your assumptions are just assumptions and they're wrong. No, it's not always the case that they're wrong. It's, in fact, it's seldom the case that they're totally wrong, but it is often the case that they learn a lot. And if they just made a point of every so often having even a few questions written on your desk that you could just from time to time ask a client and say, oh, you know, look, I've never asked you why did you leave the person you were with before? Because, you know, quite often your client or your customer will have worked with somebody like you before and it's useful to know. So another example I have is somebody who does training for government and one of their competitive advantages is when a government department orders from you, say a training session, they are not flexible. If you've sold two sessions over two months, 
I could phone you up and say, Melanie, actually, I think it'd be better if we did the two sessions in one month or we made it three sessions. I won't charge you anymore or just be $100, but whatever it might be. In government, if you've gone and you've said it's X and it's Y, there is no variation possible without a ring binder of paperwork to make the change. But what will often happen is providers will sell something to government and then try and vary it. And their client inside government is sort of like, no, no, don't do this to me. So my clients make it very clear on their website. We've worked a lot with government. We understand procurement. You know, we will make sure it goes smoothly because they, and that didn't come from me. They had had that conversation with their clients and they knew that was a frustration. And that's not a really intimidating question to say, hey, look, you know, I know you work with other training organizations, you know, what makes some people easy and some people difficult because we'd love to be easy and people will tell you. Cool. So, so far you've said, look, have above the fold. We've talked about that. Describe what you do and then make sure you deal with the most crucial pain point right underneath there and then go down and keep dealing with each of the rebuttals that people are thinking from the biggest to the smallest. I want to ask about CTAs and buttons and so forth that then surround this text as you're going down and handling objections from the top to the bottom. Back in the day, we used to all have that one thing like book a, book a call, book a call, book a call all the way through. People see that and they go, get away from me. I feel sick. I feel yucky when they're seeing that now. Like, you know, maybe that worked 15 years ago. It doesn't work today. So I'd like to know, you know, what is the buttons that we should be now seeing where would, should they be leading it? Should it be to content? And how many buttons should we be actually, you know, seeing through that process? Is it, you know, two, is it three? Like what's the best practice? What are you seeing in the market? What you want to think of is your landing page, which will be longer than people think it should be. So the surgeon's landing page, for instance, I think that was about four and a half thousand words. And, and people go nuts. Oh, people don't read anymore. Oh, no, it's too long. My web designer said if it's more than 300 words, no one will read it. It's just bullshit, right? There's no such thing as copy that's too long. There's only copy that's too boring. And, you know, if somebody has a problem and you're talking to their problem, it's not boring. So you need to have that sequence of objections. And that will take you a long time because the objections go from, I don't want to join a gym because I tried joining a gym before and it didn't work. Big objection down to, oh, I went to a gym once before and people didn't wipe off the machines and I didn't like that. Or everybody was really hot and I feel really flabby and I don't want to be with the hot people. Like there's all kinds of objections that you have to deal with. And some of them you can deal with in one line. What you want is buttons like a motorway that sort of, you know, you see exit to Goulburn in one kilometer and then you go a little bit further and there's another exit to Goulburn or Gosford or, or, or wherever. You have those buttons where you think, logically speaking, I've dealt with the biggest objections and that might be enough for some people to say, yeah, I, yeah, okay, I, I'm in. You've, you've dealt, that's all I cared about. No, I don't worry about hot people and I don't care if people wipe down them. I'll wipe down my own machine. It's okay. Or I'm very hot. It's, it's okay. So you keep adding them where it's logical for people to jump off. In terms of what the button should say, you need to think about it from the point of view of the reader. What will they want next and find useful and be prepared to do? So the book of call, as you say, 
people these days anticipate that that's going to be a sales call. So you can call it a free 10 minute consultation and you're just a book, right? Because nobody, anybody who believes it's a free 10 minute consultation is so stupid. You don't want to work with them, right? Like that don't. So stop, but make an explicit offer and tell someone what they're going to get on that call. What, what is the result for them of that call? But also think about, so I had a software company client, for instance, and they wanted you to book a demo. And I said to them, I'm in your target market and I don't want, that's not the next thing I want because I don't want to book a demo and then you tell me the software is $25,000 a month. And I'm like, oh, it's a great demo. And even though I love the software, that's not my SaaS budget. I don't want it. And they're like, understand that. And we understand we're going to lose people but we only want the people who are hot to trot to a demo at this point. You're like, okay, well, that's a conversation. We had the conversation. They understood they were going to lose people, but you need to think about what is the smallest next step that you can ask someone to take that's worth it for you. Is it downloading a PDF? Is it having a phone number? Is it giving them a bit of a choice about how to get it? I mean, ideally it's one thing like you don't want a landing page that says, do you want the PDF, the video, the free course, the call? Would you like us to SMS you? We, one thing, but yeah, what okay. is the thing that makes sense that moves somebody to the next stage? So moving away from landing pages very briefly, for instance, what a lot of people miss the opportunity to do, for instance, is say someone's reading Facebook. They're not interested in seeing an ad for a product and going through to a landing page and, and being sold something, but they are interested in interesting content. So you might, for instance, send somebody to an advertorial. So you could have a, a magazine article style piece that somebody clicks through your reads and goes, oh, okay, I'm quite interested in that. Now I've built a bit more trust and a bit less resistance. And the landing page equivalent could be, all right, I've convinced you of X on the landing page. Like the landing page can get you this far. Mm. Now I need you to download the PDF that will convince you that you can you can do the next bit and then I'm going to email you follow up. So you just really got to be thinking about where are they? Where do you need to move them to? What are the steps in the middle and how many steps can that landing page have filled in for you? Whether that landing page is an advertorial of content that's subtly selling or a landing page that's hard selling. What's the next thing? And absolutely, you, because I mean, a thing that people absolutely forget is that Introversion and extroversion is a spectrum, but 50% of people are going to be on the introverted side of the spectrum. So you could have somebody like me who does not want to talk to you on the phone. Under almost no circumstances will I respond to a call to action that is to phone you. So if, if you want to make me book a call, I'm likely to go looking for somebody else. Got it. Got it. So that's really clever. So that the button is where it needs to be after you've handled, do you think enough of an objection, then you call for an offer. Then you're saying, you know, you only keep putting in those offers as you feel that it's a natural place. So it just naturally feels right. But what I didn't know that's really new for me is you're saying that it should be the one offer all the way through. It shouldn't be like, yeah. here, download this PDF now. Okay, here, listen to this podcast in the second button. Okay, here, now do this. Like, no, you're saying try to make one simple conversion, 
by call or offer throughout the one landing page. Like it just goes to that one place. It's simple it's because, you know, I'm driving down the highway. I see your offer to, you know, click to download or click to book a call or whatever. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to. I'm not ready. I read a little bit more and now I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I, I didn't know that you could do that in Japanese. That makes a lot. Oh, okay. I'm quite interested now because I thought it was impossible. I was quite interested, but I thought it was impossible. Now I believe it's possible. Where do I book that call? Oh, now now the action is sign up for a 12-week lingua franca. I'm, I'm, hang on. No, that's not what I wanted. It should be the thing that makes sense for the person who is on on that page. That That is the point. You're selling one thing. So everything on your landing page, it's the same with an email, it's the same with anything, really has one one job. You know, the job of the headline is to get somebody to read the first line. The job of the first line is to get you to read the second line. And then the job of the button or the, or the link or the whatever is to get you to do that thing. But you don't sort of spend a third of a page convincing me to do thing one and then go, oh, well, that didn't work. Okay, I'll try and convince you to do something different now. You just, it's a bit flaky. Clever. Now, this the part I want to ask you about is, so I put out an ad now, okay? So I've done this landing page and done my service page or whatever it is that I'm selling. I've done a whole page for. But now I've gone to, say, LinkedIn and I've created a offer to try and drive traffic. Do I now customize this landing page to match that offer or... Do you think that when you are doing a ad, you should be actually rewriting a whole new landing page? Like it should be done together as one exercise. It depends how different the ads are. Like the, the landing page should be congruent with the ad, but you might get away with just changing the above the fold. You know, if, if the ad says, are you feeling ugly today? We've got the solution. Then, then the top of the landing page should say, for people who are feeling ugly today, have I got something for you? And then, then if you're trying a different line that says, are there big red angry blemishes all over your face, then the landing page would talk to that. You know, you know, one of the great, you know, copywriting things that I have a lot of trouble with my clients about is one of the oldest in the book, which is that you need to be writing for people with a 12 year old reading age. And I cannot tell you how many times clients have said to me, but, oh, but all of my clients have PhDs and, you know, they're super clever people. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, they're super clever people who are busy. They're working in an open plan office. Somebody's shouting. They're on their iPad in front of the TV. Absolutely. They're in the plane. Whatever. It is. They're giving you a fraction of their brain power. You're giving writing this landing page 100% of your brain power. So you're like, well, it's very clear to me. They're giving you 5%, even 25%. And that means make it simple. Keep it down at that you know 12-year-old level which is where that certainty comes in. I've clicked an ad that said blue umbrellas. I want to see a blue umbrella at the top of the page that I arrive at so I know the internet hasn't done a bit of a Netflix try your luck shuffle. You've actually taken me to where I thought I was going to go. Excellent. What one thing that is always a struggle is people say you need to make an offer on the landing page. You need to make an offer. And that's super confusing for a lot of people that are like, okay, well, bloody hell, what effing offer? 
you know, what effing offer do you want me to give? Like, you know, I am giving you a freaking consultancy session that I would normally charge thousands of dollars for. The concept of offer is also quite intimidating, I would say, because you straight away feel like I have to make an offer, like I'm almost like at an auction, like I'm selling something, you mm. know, and it, it creates an uncomfortable sense. Yeah, so, well, because you're being asked to put up or shut up. Yeah. So my question is when you're dealing with, okay, come up with an offer, where, you know, how are you thinking about it? Are you, how are you thinking about it? What is actually working? currently in the in the new marketing world that's constantly i genuinely I don't think there's anything new i think this is mm -hmm. the problem that people this is how people end up chasing shiny things right that, yeah. that everything is new like one of my least favorite things in the world is this idea of writing for the web because if you go back and look at any newspaper advertisement from you know the 19th century it's all short sentences, subheadings, short paragraphs, really clear writing. You look again, right through, you know, particularly because it's more of our language. But if you look at any newspaper ad from say the 1980s, short paragraphs, clear writing, subheadings, scanning, you know, people think that people, people have only started scanning pages in the last 10 years. You know, it's nonsense. There's nothing new. What works is understanding what the reader wants and why they wouldn't take action. So for instance, in these ridiculous free calls that people offer, they don't understand one people don't believe, or they don't, they don't stop. They don't stop and think, would you believe it? If I said to you, I'm going to give you $10,000 worth of value for nothing. Would you believe it? No, you wouldn't. So why mm. is your reader going to believe it? Yeah. So what is going to, what, what is the most that they will believe that you can deliver on? Mm. How can you prove that you're going to deliver it and deal with their objections? So for instance, the conundrum that many people in that situation are in is you want to look prosperous and successful and fully booked as if you would never need to advertise, except you have. So what is the reason you're going to give somebody to believe that you are available for a free, I mean, it's one of the reasons that Taylor's, for instance, we don't do free webinars anymore. We do paid webinars and we call them masterclasses and you pay. And we explain that the reason you're paying is because we don't just describe a problem for 45 minutes and then pivot in the final 15 minutes to selling you the solution that actually we won't tell you was <laughs> if you go back and read the marketing material for the webinar was the thing that we actually told you the webinar was going to tell you don't do that. It's like we will describe the problem in the landing page and we will then sell you the solution, which is the masterclass. And so that deals with people not believing because how many times on LinkedIn has somebody popped up in, you know, connected with you, then popped up and said, oh my God, you won't believe it. Tomorrow I'm doing a free webinar that promises you untold wealth. You're like, no, I'm not going because my time isn't free. Your time might be free. You know, so you might be able to do a free two hour call for me. That's lovely. You might be able to do a free strategy for me. That's marvelous. Good. You're clearly got a lot of time on your hands, but I'm busy. So why would I do that? So that's how you craft the offer. You have to think about what do they want and what will they believe that you can do? And depending on how shonky your area is, 
determines how hard you have to work. So for instance, tomorrow's Taylor's masterclass is about writing email newsletters that get opened. And part of the argument that I'll be making tomorrow in the masterclass is that the benefit of working hard on your email newsletter is that you don't have to work as hard on your sales pages because when you email your mailing list and say, hey guys, I'm doing a $49 masterclass next week, they think, I've read a lot of Stephen's stuff, it, it, it's pretty good and that's the free stuff. I'll come, I'll come for $49, worth a punt. He, he's built a relationship with me. So in terms of that landing page and that call, how far away is the reader from believing that you're actually going to deliver what you promise. So you need an offer that is what they want, that they believe you will give them for that price. And if the price is free, then it's probably not a consultation call. So I've got a client, for instance, who's a, a book coach called Kath Walters, and she will give you an hour's free call. But on her website, which Taylor's wrote, it makes it very clear, this is what's gonna happen on the call. And this is why we have it. Because I'm willing to spend an hour with you because my program is not cheap. I think her program's about $10,000. It's not for everybody. I don't wanna waste my time working with somebody that it's not for. So I'm willing to give an hour of my time to talk through your ideas so that if they're a waste of both of our time, neither of us wastes more than, more than that hour. That's pretty credible, right? It's an hour. It's yeah. not 10 minutes and I'll make you rich or do your financial planning mm -hmm. for you or whatever it is that I'm supposed to be going to do in this consultation session. It's she knows a book coach is not going to get 100 calls a day. She's not going to get oversubscribed for this hour because it's a niche market of people who are willing to pay $10,000 for coaching to write a book. So she'll have a good enough strike rate of those people to make it worth a few hours saving herself from a dud. Yeah, it sounds like there's so much psychology behind good copywriting from, you know, listening to it. And I always thought, you know, copywriting back in the day was like, you know, it read really well amount of books. So you're really good with your words and, you know, you're a wordsmith, but more and more, and as we're talking, it's like so much of it is psychology and what that person's feeling in that moment. So what are your favorite books you've read about understanding psychology and, you know, to give people more about biopsychology? Far and away the, the best. So there is, I did, because I get asked this question a lot, there is a blog mm -hmm. post on the Taylor's website about, I think it's 12 books you should read if you, if you want to be a copywriter. But on the psychology level, and they are mentioned in that post, for instance, is Influenced by Robert Cialdini, which is the six principles of influence by which humans make decisions. It's an incredibly readable book published in, I think, 1982, 1984, still in print because it's just never been bettered. And if you read and absorbed influence, you'd know all the psychology you need to, to understand. It's, there's scarcity, authority, social proof, liking, you know, these, that, that, those are four of the six, you know, they're just absolutely huge they are the you know social proof is the reason you go on holiday and eat in the restaurant that has 10 people in it instead of the one next door that has two yes. people in it even though you know nothing 
about either of them. It could be the owner's family having dinner in the 10 person <laughs> restaurant. You don't, authority is huge, you know, all of those things. Once you, if you read influence, once you start to understand it, and again, there are some videos about it on the Taylor's website because we use it in everything we do. You will look at people's landing page and you go, oh, I see what you do, that scarcity. Oh, look, a little bit of social proof there. Oh yeah, okay, I see, I see what you're doing but mostly people don't like that's something we do a lot with clients. So when we send a first draft to a Taylor's client, it comes with a note at the top that says, please don't start rewriting this because there's probably stuff going on here that you don't understand. Like if we've got something wrong or you don't like something about it, tell us what you like and tell us what you don't like, but please don't start rewriting it because there's lots that we do. So for instance, I had a whole conversation with a client once about, how good copywriting, and this is what I mean about it, it's operating on layers, the camera points at the reader, a landing page, an email, a webinar, whatever it is, has to be about the reader, not you. Even the about us page of your website is not about you. It's about the reader. Same with your LinkedIn profile. So everything we write is about you have a problem and we can solve it. Not we have a great product and you'll love using it because it's subtle, but you have to be consistent with it. And that kind of stuff, you'll have that conversation with a client and they'll go, oh, I didn't realize you didn't. And you're like, yeah, you've changed that word because you didn't like it, but that word actually created scarcity. Mm. You know, scarcity is a great example because it's why you see so many 10 secrets of doing X. Because a secret is by definition scarce. So you're playing on the human psychology of people thinking, oh, shit, there's not much of that. It's secret. I better get it. Um, urgency being another one, you know, sale ends in 32 hours and 15 minutes. It's all of that is playing on your psychology. So you need to understand because if you think somebody buys a Mercedes because it holds the road better on the way to the supermarket, you are mistaken. People buy a Mercedes or an Audi because it says something about them. And the guy who buys a Mercedes and the guy who buys an Audi are probably thinking they're saying something different about themselves. You need to understand all of that to be convincing. Yeah, absolutely. What is that person that's buying an Audi or buying electric car? What, what is it that they are thinking about themselves? Like, do they want to express themselves as a successful league successful? Successful. And you know, the person with the Mercedes or the Audi wants to say that they're successful. Potentially the person with the Audi wants to say, I don't buy a Mercedes because I'm a little bit different. Mercedes was too mm -hmm. obvious for me. I buy an Audi. You know, the person who buys a Volvo conceivably is saying I'm a good parent. Like mm -hmm. I value quality, but I'm also really keen for my kids to be safe. And also I've got money because Volvos aren't cheap. So you're still mm -hmm. saying, you know, I was talking to a client the other day who was explaining to me where he lives. He bought a Prado specifically because all the other parents in the new area where he moved to drive Prados or the equivalent. So he yeah. wanted to fit in, like he's a marketing person. So he understood when I drive up in a Prado, I'm saying to the other parents, I'm just like you. And, and mm -hmm. he, because he's a marketing person and knows what he was doing, can articulate that that is why he bought it. But, you know, it's like when you go to, you know, where young people get together and they all think they're highly, you know, individual, but you're like, you're the cool kids, you're the goths, you're the ones who think you have no friends because mm. the ones who have no friends dress like each other, mm. you know, they all have a uniform. 
you buy things to fit in with the people that you want to fit in with or be appreciated by the people you want to be appreciated by. So when you know that, you you write to that. That's that's what you talk about. Super, yeah. Super, super deep. I love it. Love it. You touched on two things. You touched on emails earlier before and then we t- talked about LinkedIn profiles. I'll go back to email and then I'll follow through with LinkedIn. So when we're writing emails, so we've talked deeply about, you know, landing pages and how that flows. Now, when it comes to emails, what changes now? What, you know, how are you thinking about it? Because I've been writing emails, I've been putting it out and I've got people saying, you know, lots of marketers and HubSpot partners and so forth coming in going, you know, when you write for clients, we want to see four clicks in the email. We want to see a really nice offer at the end. And and back in the day, I remember, I don't know if you remember, like sort of four, three, four years ago, all the clients I picked up, they were doing these newsletters where you can click several different blogs that you'd amalgamate together. And that wasn't really my style. It's not something I think I, I don't like to leave. If I've got only 10 seconds, I want to read most of my stuff and then, you know, kind of observe and then delete that or take action. But I hate when there was like, you know, five different things. Not saying that that, I mean, sometimes I do get stuff from Qantas and I'll go, oh, that kind of grabbed me and I'll maybe click on it. But I've kind of moved to more thought leadership and giving value straight away. What's your view on length, I guess? of email style of email that you think is it you know per brand is it customized where are you thinking about how emails should be how they should be delivered now i think the great thing with email is if you look in your own inbox you'll see this tepid sea of gray you know you you'll get brands who'll send you stuff that looks like a magazine and that's fine because, you know, e-commerce is fine. You're, you're in it for the product. You're not in it for the relationship. But if we go to service-based businesses, which we've been talking about, people want a relationship with you. So you get service-based businesses that one think it's more professional to start with a giant banner at the top of your email. If you think about things from the reader's point of view, which is the only way that's worth thinking about things because they have all the power, why do I want to scroll past your ginormous, stupid email banner before I get to the con? I don't. There's nothing in it for me to look at that artwork or that whatever your designer decided, justified his or her time at design school. It's a waste of time. Then it's all HTML and you think it looks more professional to make it look like a magazine or whatever it is, but that just puts the reader at arm's length. It says, I'm a business, I'm commercial, I'm being very, very professional. And you're saying, you know what, you're in my inbox, piss off, I'm deleting it. It's not interesting to me. So I think email should be plain text. They need a subject line that stands out in the inbox. And for the love of God, an emoji does make you stand out in the inbox. It makes you stand out. It screams, I'm commercial and I'm trying to sell you something by looking cute. And you're like, good, you've made yourself a really easy target because I'm tracking the emoji, click, delete. Very mm. easy. It's That's ridiculous. Subject lines have to be something that jumps out at somebody because as I was saying about landing pages, People are looking for an excuse to maintain the status quo. You could, that's the psychology you have to understand. People are essentially, it might be a rut, 
but it's comfortable and they know what the rut looks like. Change is a little bit frightening. So you've got to convince them. In an inbox, people are bored. They're looking for an excuse not to do the thing that they're supposed to be doing. So if you snag them with a great subject line, they're more likely to open your email, but then you have to deliver. So I've got a law firm client, for instance, that absolutely resists my advice and they want all of their email updates to start with the name of the firm. <laughs> and then it says area of law, let's say litigation update. So you open your email and there in the subject line is Lewis and Francis <laughs> litigation update. You're like, no. well, I've got no idea what I'm going to get when I open it. So I'm not going to. When you, if, if it had a subject line like surprising decision by the high court or high yeah. court shits the bed or whatever it yeah. might be, you're going to click on it. And, and they are terrified when I talk to them because they think I'm trying to suggest that they say something like high court shits the bed. All I'm saying is you need to be more interesting than you already are, more interesting than the competition, but you don't have to be unprofessional. Mm. And it's not unprofessional for your email to start, hi, Stephen, and to be signed by a person, yeah. not by the firm or the litigation team. I don't work with the litigation team. That's not a thing. I work with a person. And then it has to be human. You need to think when a friend writes to me and says, do you know, I read this really interesting article and I thought you'd like it. Write like that. Yes. Not, hi, Stephen, here to for pretty on the 3rd of September you know, forsooth, the high court doth speaketh. And, you know, I, one of the ones I'm using in the Taylor's masterclass on, on being human, I've rewritten it. So what, what this law firm had done that I use in the example was there was a state budget in Victoria and they had essentially regurgitated the facts tax on this is up 12% tax on that is down. There's this much money been allowed for schools. I'm like, I don't look to my law firm to give me an update on the actual contents of the budget. I would have got that from the newspaper, from the government website, from any number of places. What would have been great from my law firm would be some context. Hey, Stephen, you're in transport and logistics. And I tell you what jumped out of the budget at our transport and logistics team. It was this. That's what people are looking for. So trying to be the New York Times of the budget, and even the New York Times isn't that stupid, but trying to be the New York Times of the budget is crazy. So what works in an inbox is building a deep relationship with people, thinking all the time, if people aren't replying to this email, I'm not doing a good job. So it's not that people are going to reply to every, I mean, like Taylorist emails five days a week, like our newsletter goes out five days a week, which people think is insane until you try it and it works. And then they are like, I didn't think that would work. I only email once a month. And you're like, you email once a month, people won't even remember who you are. Like, that's just crazy. Somebody signs up for your mailing list on the 1st of November and they don't hear from you again until the 30th. And then they, the second time they hear from you is the 30th of December. No wonder they're pressing spam. They've no idea who you are. They've no recollection of ever signing up. So being personal, building that connection, thinking about the reader and thinking, Melanie joined my newsletter. 
why? What kind of stuff does she want? Where, where, how do people come to my newsletter? Why don't I write about that? Talk about that. Try and do it in an interesting way. Try and say things that they won't be reading from other people, which doesn't mean it has to be original thought. My clients don't read copywriting books. I do. So I can read it and think, oh, that's an interesting snippet. I'll send that to my newsletter. They don't care that I didn't think the thought first. They care that they read an interesting tip. That's value that I've provided. So you need to be thinking like that rather than thinking about sending out pompous announcements about stuff that nobody cares about, but you're excited about. You know, we've got a new part-time night manager in our Cremorne store. You know, I don't care. What what about like click opportunities within the email? Like, you know, what's the less you look that? like spam, the better it's going to be. So the more you're putting mm. four links in an email, for instance, the more likely you are to end up in the promotions tab, which is not where you want to be. You want, I, if at all possible, you want to be in the primary mailbox. Yeah. So I do things with with my newsletter like I invite people to reply to me. I ask a question and say, reply to me and let me know. So that Gmail sees people replying to me. They're like, not only are they not deleting and unsubscribing, they are replying. Or I ask them to click. I say, oh, look, you know, I took a photo of something. Click here to have a look at it. So it's not cynical. Like, I mean, when you click, you get what I promised you. So if you were interested in that, you click and you get it, right? Yeah. But you've clicked. And the email software has seen that you click and you've seen that you interact. And so you're less likely to end up in promotion. So if you're sending four links, you know who sends four links in an email? Spammers and businesses. And that's how the email software says, I'm going to put you in the folder for spam, terrible, or for for businesses and promotions. Uh, So generally speaking, I would say don't. But on the other hand, lots of people do. And it works well for them. It kind of depends on where you're sitting in that level of interaction with your with your audience. But I wouldn't put in more than you humanly need. So the way that I'm writing my newsletters now, which is working for us, is there's pretty much, generally speaking, there's one link in there and it's at the end. Yeah. So there's a very simple structure that the emails follow, which... I teach because generally what we do, we teach. So, I mean, I teach that structure to people. Well, I will in tomorrow's masterclass. And then there's one link. And I'm actually experimenting with having that link out there playing. HTTPS, whatever. It doesn't say click here. Because to go back to almost everything that we've been talking about, people want to know what happens next. So... When If we walked down a high street and all the shops had frosted glass, we'd be much less likely to go in because you'd be like, you know that awkward thing when a restaurant or a bar has frosted glass? You're like, mm. what if I open the door and everybody goes quiet? Or what if I open the door yeah. and something's happening and I, like, well, I'm, I'm going to go into the one, the store where I can see through the glass what's going on inside. Telling people really as explicitly as possible what they're going to get if they click a button or a link we'll get more people clicking the button or the link because they know. So if you get to the bottom of a Taylorist email and it says, click your ACPS Taylorist agency slash, here's a course for you. I'm like, okay, well, I've got a better idea. Whereas if it says, click this bit.ly link, you're like, is that taking me to Russia? Is that, you know, who's taking my bank account details at the end of that? 
Not that there's anything wrong with putting in hyperlinks, but ideally you just want your emails to look like, to be formatted like an email from a friend or a client or, or somebody else. Because as soon as you start deviating from that, you make it harder to build a relationship with me because I'm like, it's all formatting in like a newspaper column or, or a page from Vogue. There's no connection. I do. I mean, I do the same as you. I have that one button right at the end, you know, inviting people or to do X if they'd like to. If I feel that, you know, I could add value throughout the body, of course, I'll create that. But I don't think about that I need to go and hit four links, you know, I'll share my thoughts or my, you know, this is what I'm thinking. And if there's opportunities there that I need the space to take them off there, then I do it. I think it's about being natural. And I think you agree with that. It's not like I have to create this so I can find out who who hit this. Because honestly, even if they hit it, they probably, just because they clicked on it, what does it really give you? People go, wow, they're, it's, if, they, if they want to do business with you, they're going to come in and reach out to you and say, I want to have a chat. Like, big deal. They clicked on your freaking LinkedIn profile and had a look at you. It doesn't mean that much as much as we're thinking that these CRMs have created these clicks and they're saying, oh, look at all this data we're giving you. But, you know, I've had so many people that have clicked on every one of my damn emails for the last, you know, year and they've done F all. Like the reality is that they're just going to click, they're just clickers. Yes, I mean, the, the key word, I think, in what you said there was natural. Like, that, that is a guiding principle. What would your friend do? So in my case, for instance, I'd be thinking, if I'm writing an email that involves four different potential clicks, then the question I would ask myself is, is that four different emails? Like, could I actually, because I email every day, should I actually be thinking this week's emails are going to be about that? Or could I have one click that takes them to a page on the website that has the four other clicks so that my email looks less like it's got a lot of links in it from a spam filter point of view. And I get them to my website and I want them coming to my website because on my website, there are pop-ups and offers and various things. So the more you come to my website, the more likely you are to encounter something else that I do that you might want because when you, you say natural, and that is a key word. And then I think the other thing that I'm really keen to get across in this masterclass is I'm not cynical about this. Like what I'm teaching people to do is to build a relationship with their subscribers, not cynically. Like, yes, there's psychology, hmm. but I believe what I do provides genuine value. I don't sell anything or promote anything that I don't believe in. I care about the subscriber's experience. So yes, while I am giving everything a lot of thought and while Taylist is a business and we need to make money from what we do, I really give a shit. So it's natural and, and it's genuine. So I'm not talking about faking it. I'm talking about actually thinking if you really cared about these people, what would you send them? Not right. don't fake it, just send exactly. them that. Imagine they're your friends and send them that. And the rest in a way will take care of itself. Because if you don't like these people, why the hell are these people you want to do business with? You're in the wrong business. Agreed. Agreed. What about LinkedIn profiles? I, I'd love to talk to you about what a winning LinkedIn profile in your view looks like. And I've seen some really clever stuff recently. And I'll share one that I've personally really like and Andy 
foot. So I had him actually on the podcast. I was looking at his, how clever he's actually done his LinkedIn. And what he does is he actually takes you through a full journey from the top of his page from where he starts with the tagline. And then he takes you through as you're sort of reading all the way down to experience. And at the experience, when you've gone all the way there, he says, you're still scrolling and reading. So that's a good sign. So he's like talking you through, you know, like talking you through quite cleverly. I really liked it that he's actually made that comment. And then you press see more to read about his experience. So because you've made it all the way there. I thought that was that is clever. quite clever. And, and that's and great. I think what the way that seen? I what are you liking, yeah, tell me what, what I put to people about LinkedIn is it's the website that a lot of people forget that they have, right? That they put stuff on LinkedIn. And if you Google their name, that's what you're going to find. And people, I mean, it just sounds bizarre. Like if somebody dug this podcast up in 80 years time, you know, they'd, they'd think surely, you know, he knew nothing. Because it is extraordinary to me that people still write their LinkedIn profile as if it's a resume. So it's bullet points about your bloody achievements or your, I manage a team of 60, I do this, I do that. Like you're like, right. even recruiters don't know what that means. You know, you manage a team of 60, okay, but do you manage them well? Are you any good yeah. at it? Yeah. So going all the way back to what we were talking about with landing pages, the way you need to think about it is who's my ideal reader. So for instance, a lot of my clients own their own business. So the ideal reader is not a recruiter, it's a customer or a client. Or for many people now, because the talent market or the job market, people will say talent, look, I sucked in the Kool-Aid, I said talent. The job market is so tight for a lot of my clients for LinkedIn profiles, they're saying the the most important reader of my LinkedIn profile is somebody who might come and work for me. So I want that in mind when you're reading it. So you understand who's coming. What does that person want from you? And what do you want from that person? And just like a landing page, how do you structure that? Because LinkedIn gives you the ability to have a headline where idiots put their job title. If LinkedIn wanted your job title in your headline, it would just put your <laughs> job title at the top of the LinkedIn knows your job title. You've filled that in down the page. It's not asking you that. It's yeah. asking you for a captivating right. statement about what you do. Do not put emojis in it. Say something value. So, so mine says copywriting that makes your phone ring. And I cannot yeah. tell you how many people quote that to me when they get in touch because they're like, oh, I, I understood that. what you do. Yeah. And then in your about me section, your summary section, it's not about you. It's about them. You need to be thinking, okay, who's on this page? If it's an employee who's looking for a better manager, then I, I would be starting not necessarily with such heavy copywriting formula, but are you an employee who's unhappy in your current job because your manager's an asshole? Great. I'm not an asshole. So you've made an assertion. Now you need to prove it. I have a team of 10. Their average tenure is eight years because they've really enjoyed previously. They'd only ever lasted 18 months in this kind of role, but mm. they've all been with me for eight years because I'm such a delight. Whatever it might be, it's that same formula. What does somebody want? What is the, what is the picture of Nirvana that I can paint for them? So, you know, if, if you're selling, I don't know, swimming pools, 
it would be summer is coming a swimming pool is a wonderful thing and it's great to be able to invite people around to play with your children because your children are quite unpopular but a swimming pool could help to close the gap then you think well what are people's objections swimming pools are expensive you're like no we use dynamite it's much cheaper because we only need three sticks to blow out a big hole in your garden and then we just tip some concrete what are the objections that people have so quite often in a linkedin scenario the objection is going to be i had a financial planner before or friends of mine have had financial planners and they complain that x y and z so you're like okay Someone's on my profile because they're looking for a financial planner, but they're actually worried about X, Y, and Z, and they're going to use X, Y, and Z as an excuse not to call me because they like the status quo. And then they can tell their partner, I looked at financial planners and they all just sounded shonky, so I'm not calling anybody. So you need to be working. What are the objections? What do people need to hear? How do I unlock that? And that is true also if you're an employee, because employees don't like hearing this, but employees are essentially micro businesses with only one client. Like that's what you are. So if you want a recruiter or a future employer to read it and be impressed, then that's a client. You're looking to impress a client. And that client has a problem. I need a project manager who can deliver on time and on budget and isn't gonna give me the usual stupid excuses. So, okay. What are the objections that people have? Like, why do people employ one project manager, but not another? Oh, because that one's resume wasn't good enough or that, you know, whatever it might be. How do I prove that I'm not like that? So if you think that all project managers are happy for a project to be at least three months overdue, tell me that your last three projects all came in early or on time or whatever it might be, even in a pandemic or whatever it might be. Assertion proof, assertion proof, but based on understanding what your audience wants and why they might think you can't deliver it. Yeah, super. I really like Stevens and if you get a chance while you're listening on, do check it out. He, this really is catchy. I don't know how long it took you, but copy, copywriting that makes your phone ring is a tagline that you first read and I go, wow, that's really you know something that you remember. But then I also love your About Us section because you are quite sassy on it you say it's not enough that your mum likes the way your website makes you sound for copywriting to work it's not enough that your English teacher would green tick the grammar to convert website visitors to buyers your copywriter has to make your website stand out to a in a world of hyperbole empty words and corporate speak so I think it's super clever as well. And that's what actually caught my attention when I got the copywriting that makes your phone ring when I was, you know, just browsing my newsfeed because it's an opportunity every time on your newsfeed that that tagline sticks out. So you became in my mind going, hang on a minute, I want to speak to someone that wants to do landing pages. And there's, again, I might not have remembered who Stephen Lewis, there's so many Stephen Lewis's that are browsing past, but that was, you know, in your newsfeed, that's the chance to make a difference and go, oh yeah, I want to speak to that person. I'm actually really interested in what they're about. So I love it. It's super cool. How long did that, that just come to you one time? You're just lying down and it just came or how did that? I think the thing about copywriting is even if it did, and I, I genuinely can't remember now, it's, I've been doing this for a long time. So in, in that sense, it would all have come from 
an evolution of what do you have to explain to clients? What do they not understand? And, and for instance, you know, the bit that you read out there about it's not enough that your mum likes it. That's come from long experience. Like I, I actually had a client say to me once, we sent the first draft and he said, I've shown it to my parents and they don't like it. I mean, he, he actually, like we talk about it in the business, right? Like designers will talk about clients who just want things to be more purple mm. because they like purple. And we talk about the fact that, you know, sometimes you get, you're listening to a client, they're giving you feedback on something and you're like, I understand what you mean. Your mum is not going to be proud enough of you when she reads this. So you really want to pump the tires up on it. But your client is not your mum and not your dad. And in the case of this, you know, particular client, they were recruiters in a, in a, I, I won't say obviously, but in a particular segment of the market and their clients were HR managers and business development people in that segment of the market. And neither of his parents was a business development manager or a, an HR person in that part of the market. So why would you ask them what they think? I had a client once, you know, so again, this comes from somewhere who was a property manager and I wrote a landing page for him. And, and to go to the point that we were mentioning, this landing page was long, but property managers have a terrible reputation. So there's a lot of trust that you need to build on a page for someone to give you a call. So I, I wrote this landing page and he said, I've shown it to a few people and, and they said they just wouldn't read on. It was too long. And I said, oh, so you, you've shown this to people who own investment properties and need a property manager. And they thought it was, mm. he's like, no, no, I just showed it to some friends. And I said, so you showed it to some people who are not in your target market who said they would find it boring. I said to him, George, if, if I wrote something that was about, I, I mean, I, I used a, well, not a vulgar example, but I said, if I wrote something for menstruating women, would I show it to you? to ask you, George, what you thought about it. Like, no, no, I wouldn't because your opinion would be utterly irrelevant. But he didn't see that. He just flashed it around to five people and was interested in their opinion. The only opinion that matters is your target market. And it's the same on LinkedIn. It does not matter what the other people in your profession or craft think about it. If you're getting busy, it just doesn't matter and that's you know we've got a lot of law firm clients and that's one of the biggest things lawyers are worried that if you write in plain english for a 12 year old reading level and say the things that need to be said the other lawyers will think you're stupid mm -hmm. but the other lawyers aren't your clients the yeah. other lawyers will see you driving past in the mercedes and then they'll go oh okay maybe he's onto something like that's right. that's the experience that we have so our best clients and the ones who've had the best results are the ones who understand. So, you know, we've got a great law firm client and they're on the Gold Coast. His target market is wealthy, self-made business owners. So the kind of guy or woman who did not finish school, they left at 16, 17, took up a trade and they were just mustard hot at the trade, mustard hot at business. Now they run a $50 million enterprise but they are no bullshit people. They don't want the fancy words and the whatever. They just want to get shit done. Yeah. And they don't want a lawyer baffling them and talking nonsense. And, you know, so his website is written in plain 
plain English. And his phone rings and his clients say, God, I just really like that. I think you're going to get me. Like, I just knew yeah. that. The other lawyers would go, oh, my God, there was no chrome. There was no polish. There were no, you know, seaside views and, you know, that kind of stuff. But the, the guys who call my client wouldn't call those guys or wouldn't call those guys if they knew there was an alternative. That's the difference. So he doesn't care. He can drive around in his Mercedes and not care whether the other people think he's stupid. Yeah, it's all about branding yourself and positioning yourself to appeal to like-minded other people. That's what you're putting out there is do do they resonate with how you want to, who you are, because then they're going to end up liking what you do. My final thing for you was I was surprised to see your LinkedIn banner, the thing that goes on the top doesn't have any text for, you know, and that you didn't put anything up there to further grab attention or you know it's it's almost like a space that I saw nothing in was that something you just you're still playing with toying with do you have the a viewpoint way I on saw that it is if mm. you look at I think you have to look at things in their totality so if you go to a LinkedIn profile on a desktop you see the banner you see the picture of the person and you see their headline so those things are working together if you see the cropped version, you don't even necessarily see the banner. There's a signal, and you, you know, this is what you, you just have to decide. If David Jones had JB Hi-Fi's website, it would be a disaster. And if JB Hi-Fi had David Jones's website, it would be a disaster because they send different messages. Because so many people just get cheesy and salesy in that banner. Yeah. It looks a bit JB Hi-Fi. And, and as you said at the beginning, and, and we are perfectly happy to say, we aren't cheap because there's a lot of work. Like, you know, as we've talked about, there's so much work that goes into understanding the psychology. Like you could phone me up today and say, I've got a real estate agent who needs a website and I could produce one in five hours, no problem. Give me a few facts. I'll just look at a few real estate agents' websites and say the same shit that they do. This mm. guy's the leading real estate agent in this suburb. You know, he sold more houses than the other boys. What it, whatever it might be, right? It won't be convincing because it won't stand out and it won't be different. There's so much research that, that goes into it. We want to make clear in everything we do that it's a premium operation. And if, if you've got $5, there's nothing to be ashamed of because some people only have $5 for their marketing or $100 or $200 or whatever it is. I'm, I'm not saying that to embarrass anybody. I'm just saying we don't operate at that level. We can't. So, you know, probably our minimum engagement says at least $2,000 for whatever we're doing up to $20,000, $30,000. So you, there is a potential perception and not everybody who puts text in there, whatever. But to me, it's like I've got clients, lovely clients, but they will have their brand embroidered on their shirt. <laughs> and I'm like, you're presenting yourself as a prosperous, successful advisor to businesses, but you look like you work behind the counter at a bank <laughs> or a Kennard's hire. Like right. it just doesn't work. Like is the tax right. benefit of putting your logo on your shirt really worth what it does to your brand mm. and so there's probably a classy way we could put text on the banner but i'm just happy with the way that it presents because i don't 
you know, like, I mean, I'm sure if you go to a, maybe a keen Deloitte person's website, maybe there's a beautiful banner with whatever Deloitte's empty yeah. slogan of the day is, but I prefer it the way that we have it. Yeah. No, it's an interesting concept. I mean, I'm always like trying to think, okay, what should be in the banner? Nothing. Put something. Then I go, I hate it. You know, it's evolved. Like you said, you know, I think the biggest takeaway is it's evolution and, you know, you get better. Like the reason your thing sticks out, you've, you know, evolved and you've understood what works and, you know, you're changing the way you articulate and message. And that's powerful. I think, you know, it's the journey to, like you said, you might not be able to afford a really high-end landing page person and you probably can't even articulate to them right now what it is. So they're not going to be able to probably do much with you. So it's evolution of getting to a point and understanding enough so you can actually go to someone like you and go, here's the information. I actually have clients that you can interview. Otherwise, you're just going to there and it might be a mediocre job regardless who you go to because you don't have the depth of understanding to feed someone the information they need to write something creative and yes um, i mean that that you know that's true because all copywriting is a hypothesis until you send traffic to it right like it's just you that's all you can ever do like nobody can promise you a win and every copywriter's had losses what what is a source of endless fascination to me is the people who will spend six thousand dollars a month or, or more on copywriting but not spend that on a landing page. So you, you've got people who will spend, you know, $20,000 to $200,000 to more, like literally much, much more on the ads, but not on the copy that people arrive at. And you look at it and you think, but I know. you're paying for golden water to run into a bath without a tap. Right. It's insanity. You know, what you'd pay somebody like us is a lot if you're going to spend $200 a month on Facebook ads, it is nothing. If you're going to spend twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 a year on Facebook ads, it's nothing at all. Yeah, because what percentage do you need in an improvement in your conversions? You know, particularly when you consider that most businesses, the client has a lifetime value. So it's not even like they convert from Facebook and you make 300 bucks. But even if you made 300 bucks, how many more people do you need to get to make it worth paying a copywriter? It's nuts. Absolutely. Agreed so much. Well, thank you so much for sharing in so much depth and going through all those different landing pages, email, LinkedIn with me. I really have learned so much and I've also embedded some of my own thoughts that I was thinking. So it's amazing to always talk to other thought leaders in the space and go, yes, they're thinking like me or they think different to me. And it really evolves and changes, I guess, how we see the market. So thank you for your time. And I'm really excited for everyone else to hear the whole conversation and get so much value. Great talking to you. Thanks, Melanie. You are listening to Innovative Minds. Tune in every Thursday and spark your mind.